For the week of May 9th, 2014, this is the Energy Gang from Green Tech Media. Stephen Lacey here in Washington, D.C. I'm a senior editor with Green Tech Media and your podcast co-host. My two other co-hosts join me today, as they do every week. In D.C., it's Catherine Hamilton. She's a partner with the consulting firm 38 North Solutions. Catherine, how are you? You were at the uh, OEA Win conference this week. How was Las Vegas? Yeah, I just got back from the you know the skin of my teeth last night. Um, the The main thing I found out was that they don't have Uber there. <laughs> but they have so much more adult gambling fun. Are you much of a, a card player? No, it is it, no. It is like being in hell for me to be in Las Vegas. I'm sorry to all of you from Las Vegas, but it's not my place. I feel the same way when I go because I don't gamble really at all. Not that I'm against gambling. I just don't do it. I don't play cards. I'm not a good card player. So I'll go there and pull a couple slots and that's it. So Las Vegas isn't my place either. In New York, it is Jigger Shaw. He goes by a lot of things. Uh, Investor, founder of Sun Edison, author of Creating Climate Wealth. How are you, sir? I know you're moving into a new apartment or a new house uh, today. Yeah, I'm moving into a new place in New York. But I have to say, I really like Las Vegas. Uh, so so I'm, I am happy to be in the pro-Las Vegas movement. Solar Power International will be there this year. So we're all going to be there anyway. Yeah, but do yeah, you know if true. the trucks from California stopped delivering food to that city, within 24 to 48 hours, that place would be the biggest donor party you could imagine. <laughs> well, they, would run, like- they would totally run out of food. Well, we've got another special guest this week. Uh, he is not in Las Vegas. He's in Connecticut. It is Andrew Winston. He's a corporate sustainability expert, the founder of Eco Strategies, and the author of the new book, The Big Pivot. Andrew, how are you? Welcome. I'm good. Glad to be here. Thanks, Thanks for having me. So you and Jigger know each other pretty well. Have you guys been competing with each other over book sales? <laughs> There's no contest. This man wrote Green to Gold as well, which I think is by far the best-selling book uh, in the category. <laughs> in, in recent years, yeah, there's some earlier players in that that probably sold more. But yeah, there was actually just an article recently in Bloomberg about the last decade of green business books, and Green to Gold was number one. So that was, that was exciting. All right. Well, Andrew is joining us for our first segment to size up corporate sustainability efforts. This is a guy who knows what's going on in the boardrooms of some of the biggest companies, and he's going to help us understand who's truly greening and who's greenwashing. Then we'll dissect the latest national climate assessment and ask what it means for energy companies, particularly utilities. Finally, we'll update you on the state of the wind market. Catherine's been talking wind for the last week at the OEA Wind Power Conference, and we'll see what the mood is within the industry. Then at the end of the show, we'll do our best to tell you something you do not know. Let's begin with a look at the world of corporate sustainability. A few years ago, GE's CEO Jeff Immelt said something that contradicted the previous years of corporate strategy. If I had to do it over again, he said, I would not have talked so much about green. Now, GE's talk about green may have shifted, but it is still investing heavily in technologies to make the world and the company run cleaner and more efficient. Over the last decade, we've seen the ups and downs of sustainability, moving from greenwashing to regret to companies making real hard improvements in energy use. So what can we say about these efforts? Have they actually proven their effectiveness? Andrew, let's uh, take Walmart as an example to start off the discussion. So around a decade ago, 
It famously came up with this plan to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, make its supply chain more efficient, and you know to procure more renewables. So today, the company is one of the largest corporate buyers of solar power in the U.S. It's got another big announcement today with Obama about buying more solar. But when we look at this more holistically, uh, a report recently showed that greenhouse gas emissions at the company have actually gone up 14% since 2005. So what are we to make of that? I mean, what does that tell us about Walmart specifically? And then the complications more broadly of how we judge the effectiveness of sustainability? Well, it's a, it's a really broad question, obviously. I mean, there's so many different angles we could talk about. And, and, and certainly, Walmart has its very real and sincere critics out there. Uh, I, you know, I, I happen to be in the camp that believes that, that companies are not um, monolithic, that the world is not black and white, and that you can find something that a company's doing that's incredibly uh, useful and, and, and good. And it doesn't uh, change the fact that there's other things that are not going so well. So I think, you know, on the one hand, just at, at face value, all those solar panels, the, the renewable energy they've got on what they say is, I think, 1,300 stores. I mean, those are real. Those are real panels. Every, every kilowatt hour is real. That's green energy. Um, you know, it, it doesn't belittle it to say that, but is it enough? You know, is it fast enough? And, we, and you know, I think one of the things that, that I've written about a lot and talk about these days is, is how we set our goals in, in companies and across um, even countries. And we need to set them based on science, based on kind of the pace of change that we need. And, you know, even though Walmart has a 100% renewable goal, which is, puts it in a pretty small camp, it doesn't have a date on it. You know, they don't know by when. Um, so you don't really know what pace of change that implies. And, and, and we know now how fast we need to go, you know, roughly 6% of, uh, per year of decarbonizing our economy, you know, of every, you know, a ton of carbon per dollar of GDP. And they're going um, – they are reducing their intensity, but it's not that fast. So I think you can you can say, you know, in all honesty, that both they're doing good things and they're not going fast enough, and both are true. Um, and, and there are a few companies that are that are showing that you can go even faster. Um, you know, like IKEA. Are they a hundred percent renewable yet? No, they're. I think they've said they will be seventy percent by next year. They just bought this wind farm, I think, in Illinois that. Um, I think they said was hundred would be one hundred and thirty percent of their electric electricity use in the u s um, so they 're going to actually be i guess a net um, supplier of energy to the rest of their kind of in calculations to the rest of their business globally um, from the u s which is kind of fascinating um, and i you know I work closely with Unilever in the u s and they just made an announcement yesterday that probably didn 't get the attention it should. Um, it was kind of downplayed or it just was buried i think um, they and NRG are in a partnership to shoot for um, 100% renewables in the U.S. by 2020. But that was you know, a big deal. There's only a few companies that have said they want to be 100% in some definition, some reasonable definition by 2020. You know, Ikea, Lego, Swiss Re, I think. You know, there's a few. So just going back to the Walmart example, yeah. you know, you're deep in this. So you have a nuanced take. You understand the complications and you can see both sides of the issue in terms of successes and failures. But someone who might be more critical of Walmart, an outsider, looks at that and says, are you kidding me? Their emissions went up 14% in nine years after they said that they're going to take this integrated strategy. So how do you judge that success? I mean, can yeah. is it right to say that, that it's a failure, you know, from an outsider's no, I, perspective? No, again, I, th I don't think it is. And I think because um, the other way to look at it is, and, 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 you, and this is a separate conversation, do you believe that consumption is too big? Do you believe... Um, these companies shouldn't be growing as much. 
but the reality is that I think their square footage went up something like 45% over that same period while their, their emissions went up a lot less. So at, you know, intensity-wise, it was going down. And the calculation I did that I think is maybe, maybe right, may, may not, was that their intensity you know, carbon per dollar was down you know, 3 to 4%, which is not the 6% we need, but it's not bad and it's better than, than most. I mean I, I'm a believer that um, if there are companies that are doing better, that are cleaner in their operations – and are selling, you know, uh, products that are that are you know better for us that are from recycled content that can be recycled, et cetera, et cetera. That we want those companies to grow. That growth is not the antithesis of sustainability if it's if it's companies taking share from every everybody else that isn't doing as well. Now, defining Walmart as a sustainable company is a, a leap. Clearly, um, you know, I'm talking more about like a Patagonia or somebody that has made it part of everything they do. But those are small players, right? We need the big guys to change, and that's kind of the other, you know, thing in in my work is that we need the biggest companies to to find this path, and we need to encourage the ones that are doing it. But I, but again, we can step back and say this isn't enough. This is how fast we need to go, and you're not up to that. Even if you're better than most, like better than most isn't good enough anymore. I think a few years ago, Walmart was doing more than almost everybody else, and and arguably they they still are in many ways. But it's not good enough. But that's they're both true. One thing I would say about Walmart, and I've been working with them on some distributed energy things, is that they're active in every single state in filing on dockets for distributed energy. So they are doing their best to influence um, policymakers to try to to try to move policy, which I think the the amount that Walmart Mart is able to influence is going to be enormous. They are in everybody's district. They right. can make a difference from that point of view. So I feel like in addition to doing things on their own, they're able to move um, not just the markets, like the whole supply chain, the markets, but they can also move policymakers and have a tremendous amount of influence. And they definitely are doing that. And they well, they are, but again, I think you, you get into the policy realm, you get into one of their potential real weaknesses and and there's been very legitimate criticism thrown at them about where does their money go in terms of the 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 politicians they support right It's good to see that they're supporting these policies that would allow them to get more renewable energy, but they're also putting a ton of money into politicians who deny climate change, for example, or or fight hard against any regulations at the national level, certainly. And I'm sure they support candidates at the at the state and local level as well um, that that are not supportive of these things. So there's a little bit of, you know, left hand, right hand at odds on this on this policy stuff. And I think that is a legitimate complaint about these companies that they, they need to step back and say, are you really on the side of changing the the framework here and the and the playing field? Um, in a way that actually makes all your efforts on renewables easier and more profitable? Um, or are you still kind of backing the normal discussion that comes from places like, say, the Chamber or other organizations that are saying, you know, this climate change thing is just too expensive to deal with? You know, I, I think we got to look hard at where companies and, – and that's why I say leadership, I think, has to change. And that, that is kind of the nature of, of my new book, not to plug it relentlessly, which I, you know, will, but, um, you know, that – that we need to pivot how we think about what a company's role is on these issues. Yeah, so the book is The Big Pivot. What is what is that pivot exactly? Like you talk about distress signals being sent to these corporations in terms of disruptions to their supply chains, extreme weather events, etc. What does that pivot mean? What are those distress signals and what does that pivot mean for corporate yeah. strategy? Well, I mean, I use a metaphor in the book. I probably should use it more because it seems to people seem to relate to it a kind of personal health. Like we get these warning signs in our lives. There's people who have heart attacks and 
Um, unfortunately, 40% of first heart attacks are fatal. This is just kind of a fact that's out there amongst cardiologists. But we have signals. We have, you know, uh, genetic disposition in our parents or we're diabetic or whatever it is. So we're get, you get these signals. And the question is, do you act on them? Do you change your lifestyle? Do you, do you do the things that are better for you in the short and long run? And I believe that we're getting signals globally. I don't think this is, you know, news to, to this group. Um, you know, things like Hurricane Sandy, things like the drought in California, the, the rising resource prices both from, you know, global demand and from, you know, weather impacts. These are serious signals, right? And the reports out this week from the National Climate Assessment, everything's telling us that the warning signs are there and they're actually happening now. So we have this sign that the world is um, changing uh, dramatically and quite dangerously for us as a species. And so we need to change how we operate. I work on the private sector. That's kind of my my area and I think companies can take the lead in this and so the pivot in my mind just broadly you know top line is that companies need to shift their focus from what's fundamentally a pursuit of short-term earnings and we could break down kind of each element of that of short-term and earnings um, and and they get to some of these larger issues if they get enough pressure if they think the hurdle rate is perfect you know if they're feeling pressure from their employees whatever it is and it's kind of secondary we need to flip that so that we're operating in a way in companies that, that manages and navigates our mega challenges and work back from there and say, how do we do that most profitably using capitalism and markets and competition and all these tools that allow us to do it? And the winners should win. They should win big. There's, I mean, I think Jigger's put numbers out there, you know, $10 trillion opportunity. There's multi-trillion dollar opportunities. So the winners should win, but there are going to be losers. But do you think at the core of this pivot these companies can i mean a lot of the things that we're talking about is this tension between the business's usual way in which they get their bonuses and salaries and do investor relations and what it is that we're talking about i mean when right. when you think about you know the electric utility industry and the death spiral that's coming after them yeah. i mean just just like this year duke literally decimated a water supply with their coal fly ash spill they're now saying that to to line the 14 unlined, you know, coal fly ash pits and remove all of the risk to local watersheds would cost them 10 billion dollars. So they're looking for some relief against having to do this. I mean, right. isn't their business as usual operation going to kick in and they're going to buy off more politicians like they did the governor and figure out, you know, how to get out from underneath that? Well, look, I don't want I, who can predict these things, and I don't think anybody's ever um, won money betting on on companies writ large kind of choosing to do the right thing easily. I mean, like we're obviously there's a long history here of, of making some bad choices, and I mean, look, the question you ask, I get versions of this all the time. Like, can we really can big companies make a pivot at all? Can you know are the are the pressures too high? Um, are is the system you know rigged? But I. I, in a way, I don't, I don't know how to answer except to say I don't know what else we can do but to, but to try to work on the, the big entities because, you know, if, if you just take like a company like Patagonia that, that, you know, people who love greener businesses could point to, you know, we can't wait till they're big enough to kind of take over for the Walmarts or the world of the big apparel companies say because, well, there's a couple reasons. They don't want to take over and it's, you know, that's going too slowly. Like we need the big guys to switch because they are so much of the economy but, you know, it is a deep challenge to business as usual. That's why I call it the big pivot. It's not the little pivot. You know, it's a big change. And, and the elements of it that I try to lay out include changing our, our, the way we see short and long term and, and, and pushing back on this short termism that 
that drives those kinds of conversations, you know, those kinds of, well, that's too expensive right now, so we should just not do it, rather than what's the, what's the long-term implication for this company. I mean, you're talking about a very specific industry that, you know, no, but the coal that needs to disappear, right? They're not right, going to survive. Right, but the reason I bring up Duke is, look, Jim Rogers was this guy who kept saying he wanted to make the big pivot but didn't. Right. And now we've got David Crane at NRG saying the same thing. Right. But when his yield co went public last year, the only thing he's been basically filling that yield co with in the last year is is bankrupt coal and natural gas assets. And so the question really becomes, can these people I, – I fully believe that Jim Rogers at Duke and then – well, formerly of Duke and then you know David Crane and NRG – really mean everything that comes out of their mouth but it's not clear to me that they actually you know can really as you know using a Lou Gerstner phrase can make elephants dance right we're talking about you know Jigger you're you're posing a question about a very very important but very specific sector right the one that that most likely if we really are going to tackle climate change does not exist right in in 20 years um or or can't exist in anywhere the sh- the form it's in Today, so that's a very specific question about can they pivot? Look, asking the companies that need to or the the companies that need to not exist to pivot is a, is a very different conversation than the WalMarts, the retailers, the consumer products companies that all do need to exist. That's kind of my point about the large guys are going to be here. Now, could some of these energy companies make a full pivot all the way to their their energy providers? They're providing the solutions on renewables. Yeah, I think that's what David Crane's trying to do at NRG. I think this is a guy that that understands that coal most likely won't be a part of the energy mix. You know, past his tenure, clearly, but he's not. I think seeing his role just as while he's CEO or just this quarter, he's looking longer and saying, if I want this company to exist in twenty years, it needs to do something different. That is a enormous pivot, right? That's a that's a different level of of change. I think companies are realizing they have to look at their value chains, they have to look at their resources, they have to say everything's getting more expensive. Wow, we better dematerialize, we better figure out a circular model. I mean, there's a whole bunch of kind of pathways to having a more sustainable company in a, in a resource and climate-constrained world that most sectors can go down. But the conversation specifically about the, the kind of old fossil fuel, I mean, that's different. We can have a, you know, I think we've got some, like, like the Exxons, that have just said, we're going to keep doing what we're doing. Come after us, right? They're saying, kill us or we're, we're going to keep going. Andrew, one of the things that you've talked about is how to define ROI and how you come up yeah. with different metrics and different values. One of the groups that we work with is SASB, the Sustainable Accounting Standards Board, which is trying to, the same way Financial Accounting Standards Board has, has standards um, for disclosure for investors and the public um, that the SEC acknowledges. We're trying to help them figure out how do we include sustainability in the mix in, in, a, in a standards process. So that, right. you know, so that companies can disclose and investors can make decisions based on the disclosures about sustainability. Do you think something like that might help start defining more metrics that then people can really start monetizing and valuing as, as part of their ROI? Well, you're on – I mean that last part of your statement is kind of the critical thing, right? We need to figure out a way to get onto the books, whatever that means, um, some of these things that we don't measure. Um, whether SASB is the pathway to that or, or materiality questions is kind of a harder question to answer. I think it certainly can't hurt. But – and this isn't totally related to what SASB does. But, but again, going back to the kind of Exxon statement a couple weeks ago, that was their disclosure statement, right? 
it that was there is do we have risk of stranded assets and their answer was no we don't which i don't know why we all expected them to say anything different than that um so the disclosure itself didn't change anything but it did at least kind of establish the battle lines you know i think what sasby's doing to say what are material issues in each sector is an important exercise but the kind of more detailed step behind that is and you mentioned you know how i talk about roi in the book is we need to look at the kind of things we don't value in business. I don't mean value like ethics. I mean like put a number on. And there's a category of stuff that's externalities. There's, that, that is, there's a lot of people working on natural capital. And there's a category that I find a little more interesting, which is about the things that are internalized or indirect value in, in business that we don't put numbers on, but they create or destroy value today already. They're not externalities. They're in the business, but, but we don't put good numbers on them. And, and you see more companies now trying to find ways to do that. That's, that's things like the ability to attract and retain employees, reducing risk, you know, hedging against volatility priced fuels, resilience improvements. It's a whole range of things that have a value, and well, we don't have very good tools for it. This is a really interesting point because you wrote a piece after Apple CEO Tim Cook chastised a shareholder for demanding that Apple stop investing in environmental initiatives. And Tim Cook said, we do a lot of things for reasons other than a profit motive, if you want me to do things for ROI reasons, you should get out of this stock. Right. And his comments were praised because he took this guy to task, this organization for, to task for criticizing their environmental efforts. But you had a different take because you said that Tim Cook missed an opportunity to talk about the ROI of the stuff that they're doing. And in fact, it does have a solid return. Right. Well, everything I've just been saying about ROI is actually the point he was making. And I'm in agreement with that, that we make strategic choices all the time that don't have a perfect ROI. I talk in the book about you know, marketing expenses and R&D and entering new markets, all sorts of things that we don't know exactly what the ROI is versus, say, investing in energy efficiency or, or on-site renewables or something that has a payoff that's mostly physics-based but maybe takes longer than our hurdle rate, right? I mean, that's, you know, that's to me a strange comparison that we even put them in the same category of investments. So it was fine for him and it was great for him to say, look, we make choices all the time that are strategic and get out of the stock if you don't like the strategic choices I make. But, but what I was bummed about was that he only said very briefly, well, the stuff we're doing is economic. Because I think most CEOs, most executives, still the knee-jerk reaction is that we're doing that green stuff because it's the right thing to do. And I, I have nothing against the right thing to do argument. I just, I just cringe because I would love the CEOs to, to say this does create value. And in fact, the renewable stuff they're doing, right, on-site at their, their data centers, off-site, I mean, they are at 100% for their, their data centers. That is good value, right, just like it is for Walmart. That Some of that's the same or less, right, under the model that Jigger created, right, the PPA model. So it, it's ridiculous that you have a shareholder saying, we don't like this, when it's actually creating shareholder value. That I wish he had hit harder on. So bringing this discussion back to the theme of the beginning – yeah. There are so many factors that we need to consider when we look at sustainability in, in corporations. Um, help us understand, when you sort through what companies are doing, how much out there is BS and how much out there is real? I think it's a mystery to a lot of people. You know, we see some uh, sustainability reports come out each year, some positive news coming out of companies, but... On the whole, I think it's really hard to know what the progress is. So how much really is greenwashing and BS and, and how much movement do you think we've seen in the last decade as sustainability has really taken hold in boardrooms? You know, I, I probably have a narrower definition of greenwash than some. I, I, I take it to mean really willful um, 
kind of misstatements and saying something you know is not true or positioning yourself as an environmental leader. I would say it's a very mild form of greenwash, but like the cards in your hotel rooms that say you're going to save the earth by hanging a towel, that to me is kind of greenwash. <laughs> you know, that, but that's mild. I, I think the, the, the big company level of doing it is, is fairly rare. But that said, what, what happens instead is you know, there was this study or um, you know, uh, a group that's now part of UL, uh, Underwriters Laboratory, they created this uh, six sins of greenwashing, and now it's seven sins. And, and they have a couple different examples. And, and I think what's more common is things that fall into that spectrum, things like you know, the sins of omission or, or just saying something that's irrelevant. You're talking about something that's not a big part of your footprint. Um, you're, you're bragging about you know, your, your paper use in your office when you're you know, a coal company, whatever it is. You know, you're, you're, you're not, nothing you're saying is false. It's just, it's just not relevant. It's not a big part of your footprint. And I do think there's less and less of that because people are they're more knowledgeable about their footprints and they actually know where their impacts are more and more. The big companies, they, they have a pretty good sense of where their hotspots are and where they need to work on them. Um, and I think most big companies have been pretty careful about positioning themselves as a leader. I mean, in a way, Walmart is a great example because they, they very rarely go out and say, we're a leader. They, they leave it to people like me and others to write about what they're doing and, and say they're leading in, in certain ways. So I think there's very little BS, but it, it keeps coming back to, is it enough? I mean, if you ask people that follow this space closely, if they're optimistic or positive, I mean, there's a lot of kind of depression in, in the space because they feel like, and this is the way I guess I, I feel, like companies are doing a lot, actually. But the, the facts on the ground, the horizon we're shooting for has actually been moving away from us faster than, than we're moving. He is the author of The Big Pivot, and he's the founder of Eco Strategies. It is Andrew Winston uh, joining us from Connecticut. Andrew, this was a great conversation. Thanks so much. This was fun. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Pleasure. and it's a, great, it's a great book, Andrew. Thank yeah, you. Thanks for being here. We're back to climate change again this week, more specifically the impact of climate change on energy infrastructure. Just a month or so after the UN released its gargantuan climate report summing up the latest science, the U.S. government has put out the National Climate Assessment. This report, reviewed by 300 scientists from a variety of different fields, sums up the status of the climate and projections for the future in the U.S., now, before we get into the findings, I want to encourage listeners to go look at the interactive site outlining the report. It is at nca2014.globalchange.gov. That's kind of a mouthful. We'll link to it on the Green Tech Media podcast page. It is a really cool design to help people digest such a big report. And honestly, after looking at it, I wonder why they didn't bring in this design team to do healthcare.gov. Uh, Anyway, there's one section that caught our eye, and that is the section on vulnerabilities in energy infrastructure. There are some really stunning statistics in there. Um, heavy precipitation events have increased by more than 30% on average in the Northeast, Midwest, and Great Plains, and those events specifically are responsible for most of the power outages over the last decade. The strength and number of Category 5 hurricanes continues to increase in the Atlantic, even though few have actually touched shore. And the number of cooling days is expected to climb by 90% in some areas by the middle of the century, straining the grid. So like the corporations we were talking about with Andrew Winston, companies managing energy infrastructure certainly need to be thinking more about those climate risks. Jigger, what caught your eye on this report around energy? 
Well, first, it was 800 pages. That was a lot of work to get through. Which is why the site was really helpful, because they dug through the sections and had takeaways. So kudos to them for actually making it digestible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's true. Um, You know, I think, honestly, I sort of get, I think this was fantastic, and and I I understand the value of this, but I, I just get turned off by it. You know, I think that when you think about what the president's doing today, he's announcing all of his... um, his, um, you know, sort of climate wealth stuff today in terms of the opportunities. I just think that this stuff is depressing. I mean, to figure out like, of course, you know, it's depressing. Game, you worked at the carbon is. war room. You've been dealing with climate change for so long. Of course, it's depressing. It is, but it's just getting worse. And it's getting worse to the point where, you know, I honestly, it's almost better for me to just sort of, you know, like put my fingers in my ears and start like <laughs> screaming la 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 than to actually take it all in because it's just I mean what the hell am I going to do about this stuff look I mean that's I'm- what the problem is like everybody in the country is saying the same thing like we haven't given people something that they can do from a personal level that they think is going to make a difference it's just like that it's like whoa that's way too big that's way way more than I can t- even read about and I think what you just said is amazing because that is exactly what the problem is on the total grassroots level. And that's why I'm bringing up energy infrastructure because you have to make it real for people. People understand power outages. They, under, they understand fuel disruptions. The utilities and the refineries and other energy companies understand the risks of extreme weather. So when you sit there and just talk about how we're screwed – People are going to want to put their fingers in their ears and not listen. But when you start talking about the very real risks to infrastructure or to energy supply, then people start to listen up. And that's the whole reason why we're having this conversation. Yeah, and I think you need to give people something to do. So if you give – to give technology something to do, for example, EIA – um, this year has a has a chart that says in the next 15 years, we're going to need 40 gigawatts of additional peak generation. All right. So what do you do with peak generation? And this is one of the one of the issues that the report raises. You're going to have increased peaks in both the summer and winter. The, there are solutions. You can use energy storage. You can use demand response. You can reduce overall load with energy efficiency. There's so many different things that you can do. And you have to give people a path and companies a path to be able to do that and profit from doing that. Well, and you're seeing that, right? I mean, in the in the wake of Hurricane Sandy, I mean, I do think that the changes that they've done in New York and Con Ed just announced their multi-hundred million dollar effort on demand response. And, you know, but what's what's extraordinary to me, though, is how hard it is to do this stuff. I mean, you know, Con Ed, for instance, um, has a tariff that's so complicated that you don't really know what the demand charges are that you have to pay for standby charges for combining power. And because of that, there have been almost no combined heat and power projects built after Hurricane Sandy because people are just sort of throwing up their hands going, I don't know how to deal with Con Ed. I don't know how to put these systems in. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, the utilities themselves are in a tough spot here. That's the reason why I started writing that ebook about Superstorm Sandy because there have been some real changes and there have been a lot of roadblocks in terms of the types of changes that people are talking about. The utilities themselves are some of the least prepared for this increase in extreme weather. I mean, you've got aging infrastructure. The average power plant is like 30 years old. The average transformer is 40 years old. The average power line is 25 years old. They've got an aging workforce and in a lot of cases limited response capabilities because of their use of contractors. 
Many utilities have these siloed, siloed outage management and workforce management systems that make responding to storms harder and understanding outages on the system. You add all this up, and then you add up some of the regulatory issues that you're talking about, Jigger. Like Utilities have some pretty major vulnerabilities in the power sector. I mean, at this point, what this report is telling me is that we need a warlike footing. I mean, when you think about what we did during World War II to get mobilized or what we did under Eisenhower to get the highways you know, built, that's sort of what we need here. I, I just yeah. think that these voluntary measures and you know, a little bit of this kind of stuff here and there is just not going to cut it. Oh, I completely yeah. agree. And, and that's why the corporate sustainability uh, conversation is really important too because relative to what companies have been doing, a lot of them have these really nice – strategies for implementing renewables and making their supply chains more efficient. But when you think about the warlike effort that we need, they're really not doing enough. Um, and, and you need something like victory bonds, like where people, regular people can invest in the future that's going to be got to be cleaner. That is such a great idea. And there's Isn't several someone proposing working. that? Yeah. Yeah, there's several people working on it. I don't think they necessarily have the financial chops to, to get it done. But... Um, I think it's such a good idea. Oh, I love the idea. Yeah, it's something I totally want to take on. I think it can be done, and I think people would, would really invest. One more interesting thing about the the energy part of the report, one of the lead authors was a risk expert with the oil giant ConocoPhillips, which goes to show you that even the big oil companies are taking these risks to infrastructure seriously. Of course, the refineries and, and drilling rigs they have in the Gulf Coast are particularly vulnerable. And so what they're doing to mitigate the problem uh, is a whole nother issue, which is mostly nothing. But they are certainly recognizing there is a problem. And I thought that was quite significant in this report. It gives it gives the phrase Houston. We have a problem. Whole new meaning. <laughs> That's yeah. right. On to our last topic, the ups and downs of the wind industry. In 2012, wind developers put over 13 gigawatts of capacity online in the U.S., and in the fourth quarter of 2012 alone, 8.3 gigawatts were installed in order to qualify for the expiring production tax credit. But as the pipeline dried up after the rush, 2013 installations fell to just over a gigawatt. According to the American Wind Energy Association, wind projects in construction phase are back on the upswing with 13 gigawatts in the pipeline already this year. That surge is due to the change to the production tax credit that allowed developers to qualify for the expired tax credit as long as they started construction at the end of last year. So the question becomes, will the wind industry go bust once again after this year's boom, or can the industry still survive even without the production tax credit? So Catherine, you were at a WIA's big wind conference all week. What was your sense of uh, the, the health of the industry, what people were feeling from the conference? Well, and complete disclosure, I wasn't there the entire week. Um, I was there, I was on a panel about policy um, on Wednesday, and then I spent some time kind of walking the floor, you know, looking at what everybody's doing. Most of the, most of the people who are displaying are either the large developers, um, the producers, a lot of the supply chain, so a lot of guys in you know, in, in gear that's used to that that is used to actually service existing wind turbines. So a lot of that industry is there. My sense is that um, that the attendance was down somewhat. Um, 
And, you know, what, what you're not seeing right now, what those numbers don't tell you is that the wind industry has lost 30,000 jobs. Um, there's been a 92% drop in projects. And a lot of this, it's just about the uncertainty. It's like if they had had last year when they got the two-year start construction, which is wonderful language, if they had at that time a, or even just la- over the last year, a seven-year, say, managed phase-out over time, you know, bit by bit, that would be so much more certainty than what they've got now. And what they've typically had is two years, then people not knowing. And the uncertainty is what has been killing companies. So what happens is, you know, the, the orders stop, the supply chain, all the people who manufacture the nuts and bolts, they go somewhere else. They sell all their nuts and bolts to other industries. And it's so hard to get all of that back. The company that we had worked for, uh, Gamesa, which is the fourth largest um, wind blade manufacturer in the world, um, and they're still manufacturing wind, wind blades. They're just not manufacturing them in Pennsylvania with union jobs. Instead, they're moving their plants to Brazil, China, India, and they're That's doing right. really well, but they're moving their plants. And that is just absolutely tragic, and it is all because of the lack of certainty. Yeah, and at the risk of sounding repetitive, we have discussed policy alternatives to the PTC before and why the wind industry isn't pushing them. But I think it's helpful to revisit this because the wind power conference is where they set their priorities publicly and they talk about the future of the industry. Please, Lord, tell me that they were talking about something other than the PTC, like how, what, what other policy alternatives there are. Was there any vision in that respect? Uh, not in the panel that I was on. Honestly, people have been told, oh, you're going to get it. Or, you know, that's the one thing the large companies are saying, you know, we have to have it. It's going to be devastating if we don't. And yet there's a really good chance they won't get it. So the way the way it stands now is that Senator Wyden, you know, the chairman of Senate Finance, uh, passed um, in through Finance Committee, the Expire Act, which, which includes a two year extension for wind with a start construction date as well instead of placed in service. So that's great. Um, And he said, I'm not doing this anymore. This is it. Uh, We're going to do tax reform as long as I'm the chair. Um, And that is supposed to go to the floor next week. You know, part of the problem is Harry Reid hasn't been able to get anything on the floor, including the Shaheen-Portman energy efficiency bill, which is like basically zero cost and has very little teeth, that he can't even get that because of the amendments. Um, The one kind of ray of hope, and it's a little bit of a double bank shot here, is that uh, Chairman Camp of the House Ways and Means Committee has started decoupling tax credits, saying, look, if it's if a, if a tax credit is worthy of being extended, then we should just make it permanent. That that PTC does not fall into that category for him. But what he was able to do last night was to pass the R&D tax credit permanently. So it's like a $155 billion provision that passed out of the House last night with about 62 Democratic votes. Um, if that comes to the Senate, and remember all the revenue bills have to start in the House, that'll come to the Senate. And if they can bring that up, which is r and tax credit is very popular. If they can bring that up and widen can put his expire act on, they may be able to get that through the Senate and then put it back in the House. But the House is not on its own going to pass the production tax credit. It's just not going to happen. They, they, it's had a bullseye on it um, for a long time. And by camp decoupling you know, provisions that are popular from those that are not, it kind of takes away all your leverage point. So it's it's kind of dicey. And if the Senate flips, it just removes all possibility, I think, of it, of this happening. So I think Wyden and Reed are trying to get it done this summer before before the election. Yeah. So 
really fascinating data coming out of the Lawrence Berkeley National Lab. They, of course, track wind and technology trends. Uh, Ryan Weiser there does some great work and puts out these reports each year. And in his new report on wind technology trends, he found that in 2013, the average power purchase agreement for a wind farm was $0.02 a kilowatt hour. So let's strip the PTC out of that. Jigger, what would the power purchase agreement look like? Five, six, seven cents? I mean, if so, that's competitive less, with new less coal. Than, less than less that? Less than four. Less than, wait, still I mean, with, without the, the PTC? Yeah, the thing that people don't realize is that we pay more for the PTC on an interest rate basis over 10 years than we do for the cash flow component. If So if the PTC were replaced with a higher you know, uh, PPA price, then the net price would would be lower than the PTC is because you know everyone can buy cash, not everyone can buy tax credits, uh, and so it's just one of those things where, uh, you know, I think that you know I get what Catherine said, but I just think this whole thing is a Rube Goldberg exercise, and the wind guys would be so much better off if they just said we're giving up on the PTC, we're spending our $20 million at the state level to improve renewable portfolio standards and to get utility companies transacting again. Because I think they want to sign contracts, but if you're a utility company, you can't in good conscience sign a contract at $0.04 when you think you might be able to get it at $0.02. Yeah, Yeah, and the problem is they're just frozen when they don't know what's going to happen. So I would rather them not have to be sent off the edge of a cliff. It would be much better to have it phased down over time. Um, That would enable them to get wean themselves. Um, But the certainty is the hugest issue. Well, the wind industry has made its own bed here. What about like master limited partnerships? Any discussion about that? I mean, you know, the, the MLP Parity Act, but that was Chris Coons, right? Yep, yep. And uh yeah, that's pretty popular. Um I mean, that's I don't got think... strong bipartisan support. Yeah, and it has support from the oil and gas guys who don't want to lose their credit. So, uh, you know, like Senator Landrieu is on on the bill too. Um, but that would probably not happen until um, the sort of the tax reform debate happens. It's not going to get stuck into the extenders package anything like that. Well, I mean, so I think that, I mean, the big lesson here from the wind industry is what is the solar industry going to do with its 2016 cliff? You know, I think Denise Bodie basically made a bad call by getting the wind PTC extended when she had on the table um, the ability to phase it out. But I think she thought, well, let's just get it extended. We can get it extended again. So the wind energy industry created its own cliff. And so the question is, how does the solar industry not repeat the same mistakes as the wind industry made um, to prevent you know, any drop-off in demand in 2017. All right. Well, let's wrap up the show and tell our listeners something they don't know. And I will start this week because uh, it has something to do with what Jigger was just talking about. So my story is probably going to elicit lots of reaction. It has to do with Mr. Roan Resch, the president of the Solar Energy Industries Association, who, of course, was on our show not too long ago. So according to 2012 filings dug up by Chet Henry of Red, Green, and Blue, Resch made $786,603 that year to lead the organization. A few people have posted articles reacting negatively to the revelation. So Chet Henry wrote this, uh, For an organization that's supposed to be fighting conventional energy interests in the halls of Congress, it rubs me the wrong way to see so much of our dues tied up in one man's salary. So... I want a response to that, but how did it stack up with other leaders? Denise Bodie, former CEO of AWEA, made 589000 
2012. Julia Hamm made $286,000. The leaders of the Edison Electric Institute and the American Petroleum Institute both brought in around $7 million. So I've told our listeners something they probably don't know. The question I have for the gang is, should we even care about this? And uh, I guess, Jigger, I'll direct it at you because you were on SIA's board and you sort of understand the salary issue specifically for SIA. What's your response to this and, and the reaction to some people in the industry? Well, I think Roan gets that because he can command it. I mean, this is a this this is a you know a an industry where if the board didn't want to pay him that, they'd replace him. But they don't think he's replaceable. When you think about the 2008 eight-year tax credit extension or some of the other things that he's really pulled a rabbit out of the hat. I mean, so much money from DOE going into solar. Solar is the the new thing that everyone loves in the in the federal government. That's Roan. You give him credit for that. And I think if people thought that he wasn't doing a good job or people thought that he that someone else could do a better job or the same job for less of a salary, they'd replace him. But I think uh, my sense is, is that the $500 membership level that this guy doesn't want to pay, right? I just think he's cheap. It's not about Roan's salary. <laughs> Catherine, you've, uh, You've been on the executive director side of this. You were uh, at the Gridwise Alliance. You you understand this issue personally. What was your reaction to it? Let's just say I did not make that kind of money. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Uh, stunning, actually. But honestly, when it comes to compensation in comparison to some of the other organizations I talked about, like EEI and API, it doesn't seem – I mean, it's it's high, but it doesn't seem that high. So I don't know. My reaction was was, – it's definitely surprised, but not overly shocked, I suppose. Yeah, and yeah. I think if he, if he doesn't deliver in this next cycle, then he's out on his ear. I mean, that's how this business works. It's, you know, you've got 40 people, many of whom don't like each other, on the board of SIA. Roan's got to basically deal with all those egos and all those people and get them all to move in the right direction to actually bring the solar industry to where we need it to be to solve climate change and create jobs and all those things. And I think if he stops delivering on that, then he'll lose his job. Yeah, it's a totally thankless job. And I, I honestly think it's up to the boards of the trade association to decide what their guys are worth. And so, you know, more power to him. Hmm. Catherine, give us something we don't know. What do you have? Yeah, so you all may have heard this, that uh, about the White, the White House putting solar panels on it. Uh, a few years ago, I wouldn't, right after Obama was elected, I was at a Green Tech Media solar conference, and I was delivering the keynote, as a matter of fact. And I had two pictures up, one of President Carter and one of President Obama. And I said, what's the difference between these two presidents? And then I showed the pictures of the roofs of the White House. And Carter had 32 solar hot water panels installed on the White House in 1979. Um, And at that point, Obama had just come in, and he didn't have any on the White House yet. So that was like the big difference is that they didn't have solar, uh, that Obama did not have solar. In, In early 80s, Reagan ordered them taken off of the White House. Uh, They were repurposed um, in other places. Um, Clinton then put PV on the like the Christmas tree display. The pageant of peace had that powered by PV. That was pretty cool. Um, During Clinton's time, they were looking at uh, solar uh, roofing shingles. And I was at that time at NREL and the deputy director of OMB called me and he said, hey, Catherine, uh, do you have like a solar shingle you can send us? And I said, yeah, sure. I sent him uh, through FedEx. I sent him a solar shingle and he called me and he 
he said, hey, I got it. It's really cool. Um, but uh, I'm standing outside because evidently it had leads on it and your solar shingle has evacuated the entire uh, executive office building and White House. <laughs> um, so they, Clinton did not put solar shingles on, on the rooftop. Um, Bush did put some on a maintenance shed. But now uh, President Obama has completed his promise and they have installed uh, solar PV on the residents of the White House. And it's really great. It's good that, that they're back up there. I think, again, this is him, you know, completing some of these uh, promises he's made for clean energy. And so far, they haven't evacuated the White House. No, they, and they haven't called me either. <laughs> I was surprised it took them that long to install the panels. They announced the project in August of last year. But I suppose there are security concerns and all sorts of other issues they need to worry about. Oh, Jigger, what do you have for us this week? So I was reading the Washington Post of all places, and um, I guess in North, sorry, in Oklahoma, they have less than one or one point five uh, earthquakes per year that are magnitude of three point zero or greater. And since uh, two thousand and thirteen, October two thousand thirteen, they've had one hundred and eighty three. Yeah, and so it's all because of frack water and fracking. Right, and they hadn't been able to make that connection. And I think recently a study came out that concluded the earthquakes were a result of fracking. I do not have that study in front of me, but people had been speculating for a long time. They hadn't drawn the definitive conclusion, and I believe they have now said that it is being caused by fracking. I mean, it's just amazing to me that like that that's an acceptable risk to our oil and gas boom. It's quite fascinating, and it goes to show you how a local game energy is. I mean, you know, the people who are staunchly in favor of fossil fuels might have second thoughts when that stuff's happening in their backyard. I'm glad that the uh, governor of New York has uh, put a moratorium on fracking. Okay, that's all for this week's show. Good one this week. For links to stories that we discussed on the podcast, go to greentechmedia.com slash podcast. While you're over there, you can send us some love. Tweet out a link to the show. Subscribe to the podcast. Send your friend a link. Do whatever you want. Spread the word. And if you want to send us a word, shoot me an email. I am at Lacey, L-A-C-E-Y, at greentechmedia.com. I pass those emails around to the rest of the gang, so we enjoy hearing from folks. And that'll do it for us. Catherine Hamilton, enjoy your weekend. Please don't go sending any solar panels to the White House. <laughs> I won't. I'll stay safely mowing my own grass. <laughs> Jigger Shaw, have a good weekend. Good luck moving into your new place. Thanks. I'll stay safely smoking my own grass. <laughs> <laughs> With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I'm Stephen Lacey. And we are The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. We'll catch you next week. Thank you.